Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Probably one of the most obvious scriptures for Pentecost Sunday would be Acts chapter 2. Most of you understand that. That's the account of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, Upon those believers, the followers of Jesus, were told, wait there until you be endued with power. That was a very uncertain time for them. How long do we wait? How do we know when it has come? What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? It was a very uncertain time for them. So they waited, not knowing exactly what they were looking for as they were waiting. And whenever that time finally came, when the Holy Spirit did come in this magnificent new dimension. And they knew that they had been touched by the power of God. And these miraculous manifestations began to happen. There was wind blowing. There was tongues of fire that set down upon each of these individuals, visible sights that accompanied this. And there was the manifestation of everybody began to speak in these foreign languages that they had not rehearsed or, or uh, learned in any way, shape, or fashion. A language, a real language came forth from people that had not been schooled in such of things. And the testimony to that was that there were certain Jews who had come into the city because this was the celebration of Pentecost, 50 days after the first fruits, whenever Jesus rose again. And these visiting Jews from other nations, from other tongues, heard these people fluently speaking their language, and they were intrigued by this. How is it that they know our language? They did not expect to find people knowing their language as they came back to Jerusalem. But much to their surprise here, through the manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit, they were speaking and they were understanding what they were saying. This was God's way of attesting to the reality of what was happening to these people. And, of course, there's always the scoffers, aren't there? These men must be drunk. And Peter corrected that. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's not even the time of the day for people to get drunk. This is something totally different. You misunderstand. And he said, this is that. Now, this is the interesting part about it. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a great Bible scholar. And God brought into Peter's understanding this rough, calloused, uneducated fisherman now suddenly turned preacher. 
and not a scholar by any means, but God revealed to him. He had this epiphany, this revelation on the spot, this unlearned fisherman, that suddenly God tied this thing together for him. And Peter, not knowing really what they were to expect, what was going to happen, suddenly stands up and with the voice of an expert says, I get it. This is the fulfillment of that which Joel prophesied some 600 years ago. Now that took the power of the Holy Spirit to make that connection. And he says, this is it. And I wonder how the Jews read that passage of Scripture, never understanding what it really meant. The second chapter of Joel, you don't have to turn there, but Peter borrows almost word for word from the 28th and 29th verse, and this is where Joel says, Afterward, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a minute because the second chapter of Joel is a fascinating chapter. To find this promise of the outpoured Holy Spirit tucked into this chapter that is so full of, of other subject matter. If you, if you read the chapter, it starts off on a very dark tone. Judgment is coming against Jerusalem. And God tells them, you'd better go blow the trumpet. Now, they blew the trumpet for different reasons in those days. Warning and a call to assemble and things. And God says to them, the good thing, the best thing, the wise thing for you to do is to blow the trumpet in Zion because you're about to be trampled in judgment. Now, those of you who know me know that's my favorite song, right? The worship team taunts me from time to time with that. Blow the trumpet in Zion. You're about to be judged. And then it moves to the next phase in the second chapter of Joel, where he tells them, therefore, this would be a really good time to consider repenting. And then, if they should repent, he says, again, blow the trumpet. And this time, call an assembly and fast. Repent. Deal with the issues that are bringing this judgment upon you. Now, the judgment, if you're wondering, had to do with uh, Jerusalem uh, about to be come under Babylonian siege. That was what was going to happen. It was going to be devastating. So therefore, God calls him to repentance. And that, that makes sense. If, if there's something that's going to happen and we're in the wrong, then let's, let's, let's get things right. Let's take care of business, right? Let's repent. Then it moves to the next section where God says, as it goes from this dark judgment to this call to repentance, to the next section that says, and if you repent, here's things that can happen in your life that are really good. I can restore the years 
that the locust has eaten from the judgment. I can bring back a, a freshness. Your, your vats will flow with oil. And the barrels will flow with wine. And this is all very graphic imagery of prosperity that's going to come. You're going to be judged, but if you repent, I can bring back better than you've ever had before. And at the end of that section, then Joel elegantly, seamlessly transitions over into this promise which was not only to the Jews, but was a promise that we now enjoy today. As suddenly, he comes out of this promise of restoration from the time of judgment, and due to repentance, I'll bring restoration. Then God reveals something that had never been revealed in all of the prophetic writings. They were living under this system of relationship with God based on obedience to a law. It was all very ritualistic. It was all very cut and dried. These Jews, they gathered together. They went through their rituals. They made their their sacrifices. They never had uh, Pentecostal meetings. Uh, they They just had this entirely different system. And and the relationship with God based on these things of obedience, uh, God revealed, he gave them a little peek into the future, and he said, one of these days, and it's coming for you, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And they didn't fully comprehend when that was written all that that really meant. Because now we know that the spirit has been poured out. We're not under that law anymore we're not dragging animal sacrifices to the altar anymore we are living in the spirit walking in the spirit and we have power available to us to perform those tasks that have been assigned to us to take the gospel into all the world to be a witness to disciple all nations And it changed the whole economy of how people are related to God and how they work for him. Everything was turned topsy-turvy. And so God said through the prophet Joel there more than 600 years ago, Joel wrote this down, and he didn't use the word last days exactly, but Peter picked up on that and made the proper application, and he did identify that. He said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So here's Joel saying, and God says, after all this other stuff, there's coming a time, be of good cheer, be of hope. There's coming a time when I'm going to change the way that we interact. It's going to come a time when it's going to be through the spirit that you're going to relate to me. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And then he lists a few examples of things that are going to happen. And we don't become specific to the text and hold it to exactly like what it said. It says uh, old men are going to dream dreams, young men are going to prophesy, and upon your handmaiden servants in those days will I pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now that does not mean that in the fulfillment of that only old men will have dreams. And only young men will see visions, and only handmaids and servants will prophesy. It's a, an expression of saying that all manner of people 
are going to be receiving the power of the Spirit. It's just a sampling is all it is. So it proves nothing about age. It proves nothing about if you get old, you can't have a vision anymore. It's just saying everybody is going to be, going to be impacted by this new power of the Holy Spirit. And so whenever this fell on the day of Pentecost, and isn't it marvelous how God brought this all together in in coordination with the Jewish feasts, as you realize that suddenly all these things they had done for hundreds of years had specific meaning. And just lining up with the, the Passover, the crucifixion of Christ, the first fruits, the resurrection of Christ 50 days later, the celebration of Pentecost, whatever this is, whenever the Holy Spirit was poured out, all of these Jewish feasts melded together with God's plan to bring in this new covenant. And it all happened just, ex- just like, like Swiss, Swiss clockwork. It was perfect, perfect and in order. And that's the order of God. And Peter said, this, this is it. I, I remember this obscure scripture by this minor prophet in our Old Testament scriptures, in our scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And this prophet said something about the Holy Spirit. God's going to pour his spirit out. And it just dawns on him as he stands up and he tells the people, this is it. This is it. This is the focal point of that prophecy. It's happening right here, right now. The Spirit is being poured out. And he said, this is what God said he would do in the last days. Remember? Now, we've talked about the last days multiple times because I have reiterated, I've hammered this point so we can understand what the last days are. I had a very recent sermon once again talking about the last days from Christ to Christ. So when it was poured out on the day of Post, in the last days, that was the beginning of the last days. We're still in the last days. And the Spirit has still been poured out. I mentioned two terms to you. Cessationism, continuationism. And I, I, I'm not trying to dazzle you. I'm not trying to throw your brain into, into a, a, a lock, a freeze. I want you to understand what I'm talking about. There is a wall of division in Christianity that probably it, there's not perhaps not a bigger wall in the realm of Christianity than that wall of cessationism, continuationism. And that means that every Christian church, Protestant, Catholic, doesn't make a difference, every Christian church falls on one side or the other of this dividing line. A continuationist believes that what we read that happened there on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts is still valid for today. A continuationist believes that the Holy Spirit still empowers people today just like he did the apostles in those days. The cessationist simply does not believe that. They believe that the twelve apostles were specially gifted in ways that were necessary to the foundation of the church. 
But once the church was established and the apostles died, then those spiritual manifestations, those miraculous dimensions of the Holy Spirit were no longer needed because we already got our jump start. Now we're up and running. We don't need it anymore. That's the difference between cessationists and continuationists. There are people here this morning that you jumped the fence. You started off as a cessationist. That's what your church taught you. It was fine with you. We read it. It's in the Bible. It was good stuff then, but eh, it doesn't happen anymore. I'm going to ask for the video right now as Craig Keener is going to make a phenomenal case for why we are continuationists. Listen closely. I will come back with my comments after this video. Paul speaks of the gifts regularly in this context. One body with many members. Well, we still have one body, and we still have many members with different gifts today as well. Paul gives us a sample with different lists focusing on different kinds of ministries. And if you, if you put these together, the samples include things like giving, teaching, prophesying, speaking wisely, healings, worship leading, evangelism. All these are, are gifts. Paul makes no distinction with one kind of gift and another because we're not supposed to look down on any other gifts. We're supposed to welcome all the gifts. He doesn't make any distinction between supernatural and what we would call potentially natural gifts, because it's God working through all of them. It hurts the body if any of the gifts are missing, whether the hand or the eye and so on. Well, today we're still a body. We still need all the members. Presumably, we still need all the gifts. Some in the Western world today say we just need the natural gifts. But not only is there no distinction given in Paul's lists, but this idea that well, we don't need all the gifts, we don't need the supernatural ones, is really undermined uh, by his theology, first of all, because everything is supernatural, all these gifts are empowered by God. But secondly, it's undermined by Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. The gifts, he says, are needed to bring the body to maturity and unity. And the gifts he lists include not only teachers, but also prophets. He also includes apostles there, not meaning one of the twelve or writers of Scripture. Uh, Paul uses the term apostle more widely than that. For uh, Sometimes we speak of missions or the different interpretations of exactly what Paul means there. But in any case, um, he doesn't just speak of what we call natural gifts. He also speaks of what we call supernatural gifts. It's a completely arbitrary modern distinction between them based on a modern worldview. Prophecy appears in nearly all of Paul's lists. Romans 12.6, 1 Corinthians 12.28, Ephesians 4.11. In the Old Testament, this was the most prominent ministry of God's Word. In the New Testament, we also see prophets. We see prophets running around in the book of Acts, uh, the Corinthian churches. Uh, what Paul says to them, apparently it was ideal to have multiple persons prophesying in each church. He speaks of prophecy as particularly valuable for building up Christ's body in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3 and 4. He urges believers to seek it in chapter 14, verses 1 and 39, probably by implication also in 1231. Even if we didn't know of true prophecies today, obeying Paul's teaching here would lead us to pray for it 
in the church. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has it to the same degree. Uh, Romans 12, 6 tells us that, you know, it's, it's according to the measure that's, that's given to us. We have these gifts. Um, Samuel could tell people where their lost donkeys were. Um, not one of his words fell to the ground. We don't see all the prophets in the Old Testament on that level, and we certainly don't see it in the local churches on that level. But some say, well, saying that prophecy is for today uh, or, or that kind of gift is for today diminishes the unique authority of Scripture. Well, that argument is an argument that's not from Scripture because prophets in biblical times prophesied it didn't diminish the authority of Scripture that already existed at that time. We have prophecies whose, uh, prophets whose prophecies were not recorded in Scripture. First uh, Kings chapter 18 um, speaks of Obadiah tells Elijah about hiding a hundred prophets by fifties in a cave, but their prophecies aren't recorded in Scripture. First Corinthians 14 speaks of prophecies in the local church, which are not recorded in Scripture. In fact, if if what Paul says is the ideal for Corinth were in fact very common in the early church, by the time Paul's writing, there may have been ten thousand prophecies in the early church, most of which the vast majority of which are not recorded in Scripture. The Bible isn't meant to contain all prophecies. The Bible contains genres besides prophecy, history, and so on. So it's, it's, it's not the same thing to say that, that uh, if it's prophecy, it has to be in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, then it's not prophecy. That, that is not a biblical argument. Some say, well, if you allow for prophecy, you allow for new doctrines. Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 shows us that Christ is the fullest revelation. That's the fullest revelation we're going to get until Jesus comes back and we know him even as we are known. But we also read in Scripture that the Holy Spirit continues to teach us. John 14, 26, John 16, 12 to 14, there are things you can't bear now. He'll teach you afterwards. 1 John 2, 27, you all have an anointing from the Holy One. Prophecy is not meant to introduce new doctrines today. But the idea that the gifts have ceased is, is, is a new doctrine. It's not mentioned in Scripture. It's a post-biblical doctrine complaining about post-biblical doctrines. We have prophesying all through Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, some more in some areas than in others, some in more periods than in others. But nowhere does Scripture suggest a change of this way of working for after Scripture is completed, like Oh, I was in the middle of a prophecy, but hey, it's 95. Um, Revelation just got finished somewhere, and now the canon's closed. I can't finish my prophecy. There's no indication of that anywhere in Scripture that that's what we're to expect. In fact, the one Scripture that people have sometimes cited for that, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10, doesn't work for that. They say, well, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge will pass away. They pass away together. Knowledge elsewhere in 1 Corinthians includes things we know about God and maybe other kinds of knowledge, uh, something like the gift of teaching. Well, has the gift of teaching ended? It says that this will happen, these will pass away when we don't need these partial things anymore because we'll know them face to face. We'll know even as we are known. That's not talking about the canon. We still need teaching. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. In the book of Acts, it speaks of the Spirit being poured out in the last days with no implication that the Spirit gets poured back. There are uh, expressions that this text mentions of this last day's outpouring. And 
we shouldn't think that if that was the last days were earlier than the last days were back then. Features of this end time outpouring include prophecy, visions, and dreams from God. <clears throat> we have diverse ministries and acts. Not everybody has exactly the same expressions of the empowerment of the Spirit. But the ones that he chooses to emphasize there show us something about God's work between the first and the second coming. We, we see things in terms of the proclamation methods in Acts. You have very educated people like Stephen, Paul, and Apollos. It can be in debate contexts. Uh, two of them had signs and wonders as well, but uh, Apollos isn't put down because it's not mentioned in him. John the Baptist isn't earlier put down because he doesn't you know, have healing or something like that. But in many, many other cases, uh, not just, not just um, these people, but uh, many others, and not just apostles, but Stephen and Philip and others also have uh, healings and things like that following uh, to, to confirm the message that they're proclaiming. Uh, we have it a number of times in the book of Acts. We have a prayer for boldness coming with healings in, in Acts chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. Signs attesting the message of God's grace in Acts chapter 14 and verse 3. If we're still preaching the gospel today, especially in unevangelized regions, we can expect signs to follow. Now, some people will say, okay, that, that happens, but, but not the gifts. But, um, but some of these overlap with some things that are also considered gifts. Preaching the kingdom, Jesus demonstrated God's reign with signs. Um, Paul says that uh, dramatic signs accompanied his evangelism, uh, Romans 15, 19. Uh, we, we still have them going on all through the book of Acts, including at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 28. Uh, if you don't like the idea of gifts of healings in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, says that the elders should pray the prayer of faith for the sick. Um, now, healings of that nature don't have to be signs. They don't have to be dramatic. Uh, it can be an answer through prayer if it happens through doctors. It can be an answer through prayer if it happens gradually. Um, there's still answers to prayer. But the kind of dramatic signs that accompany the gospel, we still see them today in, in the places where the gospel is breaking new ground. Why would God want work one way throughout most of Scripture in various times and places, sometimes more in one than in another, but various times and places, and then suddenly stop without prior warning at the end of the first century? Isn't it more biblical to expect that we should follow the same pattern that we see throughout Scripture? Namely, that in various times and places, as God deems best, and as people welcome his work, the work goes on. The gifts continued through history. Irenaeus speaks of roughly the same range that we have in the book of Acts. The leading cause of conversion in the 300s, according to Yale historian Ramsey McMullen, was healings and exorcisms. Augustine once believed the gifts had ceased, but changed his mind, at least with certain things, with healings, certainly. Uh, early Methodists, including Wesley, emphasized it. Uh, 19th century Lutheran pastor Johann Christoph Blumhardt. Uh, today, some associate up to 80% of global growth with signs and wonders taking place on the cutting edge of evangelism. Still, we need discernment. Not all spirits are from God. 1 John chapter 4 shows us. Uh, even in the church, we need to evaluate prophecies. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. We, we shouldn't despise them. We should evaluate them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, but don't drown it there either. Uh, we, we need to seek the gifts. 
1 Corinthians 12, 31 and 14, 1, 14, 39. We're to seek spiritual gifts, not all of them for ourselves, but for the body as a whole, to build up Christ's body. And we may be surprised what God will choose to do as we welcome God to gift each of us for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. He packed so much into that 12 minutes that really sets the, uh, the stage for what I wanted to accomplish today, the case for continuationism. And he mentioned in there, I hope this didn't slip by you, that some have estimated up to 80% of global church growth is attributable to those ministries where there are signs and wonders following. This is not an insignificant component of Christianity being spread around the world. It is a vital component of Christianity being spread. Now, a few years back, a few decades back, there was this thing called the, uh, we now call it the charismatic movement. How many of you were a part of that charismatic movement? Can I, can I see your hands? There's a few here. We saw a resurgence of the Holy Spirit in the early 1900s. This was the birth of the Assemblies of God. Church of God, Pentecostal denominations. And we begin to carry forth the concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the continuationism. And for years, we struggled as Pentecostal churches to gain any foothold in this world. It was just uh, a grassroots effort at the very best, one soul at a time, as Pentecostal churches were commonly located down by the tracks. That sounds like that's just a generalization. You know why they were located by the tracks? It was cheap property. We didn't have any money. We didn't have the doctors and the lawyers and the wealthy people attending these churches. There's blue-collar workers, and hey, there's a lot. There's a building down by the tracks that they're giving away because the train comes through at regular intervals. And that's where they built their churches and got their start. So there were common reports of the little church down by the tracks, and have you heard what's happening there? Through the history of modern Pentecost, we have accounts of times whenever the fire department was called out because it appeared as though the roof was on fire, but it was nothing but the power of the Holy Spirit glowing in the building. Reports of people that would go down in order to have some Saturday night fun. 
and go down and poke fun at these wild and crazy people down at that weird church down by the tracks. And in those days, they didn't have air conditioning. They left their windows open, which was some of the best advertisement you could have in those days as the noise spilled out of the buildings. And the curious onlookers looked in, but sometimes got too close. And the Holy Spirit got a hold of them. And these, these reports of how these humble little Pentecostal churches began to get foothold in the 20th century, still being marginalized by the nominal denominations and churches who wanted nothing to do with this offshoot of Christianity. Until along came this outpouring, fresh outpouring in the middle of the 1900s that we now call the charismatic movement where suddenly people from these other churches that we would call cessationists and I don't use this derogatorily and I don't say anything in this sermon to talk bad about my fellow Christian believers whatsoever I'm just trying to tell the history as it is as people from these churches began to show up at some parachurch ministries like Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship, like Women's Aglow, where they were not in the confines of their church, but somebody there would begin to tell them about something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And by simple faith, they would walk forward and say, I'm kind of interested in that. Will you pray for me? And lay people were laying their hands on lay people, and they were beginning to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit and going back home to their church. Where who knows what would happen at that point. Sometimes they were escorted right back out. Don't bring that stuff into our church. You're going to mess things up. <laughs> I guarantee you it'll mess stuff up. Or if they were somewhat indulgent, they would say, whatever you believe, keep it to yourself. But don't practice any weird stuff here. And then they would begin to have their own little home Bible studies because they were not often given a lot of latitude in their church as a Sunday school teacher or any other influence. So they invited in, people into their homes. And from Methodist churches and Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and Lutheran churches and Roman Catholic churches, priests were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Nuns being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Pastors of these churches who snuck out and got baptized in the Holy Spirit and went back into the pulpit and now they had a decision to make. Do I tell anybody what happened or do I pretend like nothing happened? Well, you can't pretend. When you get a hold of this, it just comes out. So they were asked to go somewhere else. And it spread like wildfire. And from that point, during that charismatic renewal, it has not let up yet as the Pentecostal charismatic branch of Christianity is absolutely, hands down, incomparably, the fastest growing segment of Christianity in the entire world. Because people who were told don't have anything to do with that. Their curiosity got the best of them. 
It's like a sign that says, do not touch wet paint. There's fingerprints all over it because people can't help themselves but to check it out. And whenever they were told, don't you dare get involved in that, they just had to see what it was all about. And the Holy Spirit began to fall. And people now having this new experience in the Holy Spirit, this brand new dimension. And I go back to the statement by Craig Keener, 80% of the global outreach being directly attributable to those ministries that believe in the signs and the wonders happening. Now we call ourselves a Pentecostal church because we believe in the continuationism. We believe in the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit today. But that should not be the reason we call ourselves a Pentecostal church. You can believe all you want. But the question is, are you Pentecostal? That's the true question. It burns on my heart and my mind day and night. It's not enough to have a title. We want the power of God in the believers here. We want to continue to believe every Sunday that the Holy Spirit wants to have His way. Are we willing to let Him have His way? You can take a car and start removing components from it. You can take the tires off and you probably still have a car. It doesn't do much. You can remove the seats. It's probably still a car, but it's not very comfortable. But you can keep on removing some things until all you've got left is a steering wheel. And I ask you, do you really have a car? And we can remove components as a church and still call ourselves Pentecostal until the point all we've got is a steering wheel in our hand. We don't have much of a car here. Are we truly Pentecostal without the power of the Holy Spirit? Philosophy and doctrine is meaningless. We can Now, churches recently, in recent years, have been scrambling to update themselves to remain relevant. I'm, I'm trying to say this without any sarcasm. I, once again, I'm just reporting what is happening. Trying to remain relevant. Churches have made changes. They have done this historically. There's nothing really wrong with that. If, if In the days whenever the churches were uh, very primitive buildings, we didn't have modern uh, uh, innovations the church that had kerosene lamps got electricity when it came out this is going to help the first church Ann and I ever pastored had only two rows of pews like this section and this section and down in this section we did not have a pew here and a pew here because we had a diesel-burning stove right here. There was frost on the walls in the wintertime back there. So you know nobody sat back there in the winter. All of my congregation in that little church fit on the pews in front and behind the diesel stove. And we huddled 
I finally talked them into, let's get some forced air in here. Let's some, put some furnaces in. We made the upgrade. We thought it was the least we could do to make church comfortable for people. If we ever grew, there wasn't enough room around that diesel stove for everybody. Churches make changes all the time. I've got them to vote. I said, hey, it's hot in the summertime. What do you say? Let's put some air conditioning in. We went and found some old air conditioners from, from uh, uh, yard sales that must have been all of 5,000 BTUs. Anybody knows anybody think about air conditioning? You can almost blow cold air with your mouth. Cooler than a 5,000 BTU air conditioner. And we mounted those in there and called it air conditioning, doing everything we could to improve matters. Now, the church continues to do that. We're trying to upgrade. Technology comes along, we're trying to upgrade. We're trying to do everything we can to make it. We're not doing anything new. Now, look at all the changes that's taken place in here. I mean, the, these young people, they, they, they've got the lights, they turn the lights off, they've got these fancy things, that they've got things moving when I'm trying to sing. I don't know whether to watch the video show or, or sing the... I, I don't care. I don't, that's, that's, that's nothing spiritual or unspiritual. They just, they just like it. I'm trying to be hip and like it with them. I don't care. But I'm the pastor of the church. And what I do care about is whatever else we do. All these other things aside. I'm presiding over a church where I say there's one thing that is non-negotiable. We still have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. With or without the lights. It doesn't matter. That's important. Everything else I'll negotiate. But one thing, people, we still, if we have, you know, if we have everything and all the bells and whistles and we don't have the Holy Spirit, we have, we have nothing. We have nothing. And if we have nothing but we have the Holy Spirit, friend, we have everything. And there are churches in town that I promise you, and I'm not trying to talk bad about churches. I'm, I'm talking, there's people going to churches all over Davenport that they will trade in their fancy coffee bar today for a church where the Holy Spirit is moving. I promise you they will. I promise you they will. And I don't think that there's an overabundance of churches that are concentrating on Spirit have your way in our churches today. There may be some good ones out there. And I'm praising God if there are, but I don't think we're flooded with that market. That's the reason I keep saying to my staff and anybody I talk to, what are we wanting to be as a church? We want to be a Pentecostal, Spirit-filled, empowered church because that's the next thing people are going to be wanting in their life. When they're tired of all the other tricks and all the other bells and all the other whistles, they want somewhere where somebody demonstrates the power of God and said it's real because some Signs and wonders really follow those who are plugged into God. It's for today. It really is. Just this past week, this recently, there was this shocking shift 
in the Southern Baptist Convention. I love my Southern Baptist friends. I do. But I also know that they have been cessationists historically. I have preached in Southern Baptist churches. I preached revivals when I was an evangelist. I went out into North and South Carolina. I want to tell you, they're the shouting Baptists out there make the Pentecostals look like Roman Catholics. Oh, they had service. But he asked me, do you think you can preach a revival without talking about that other stuff? And I said, I'll try. I had to strike a deal with him. I could find something to preach about with that, you know, that stuff. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, I saw the Holy Spirit get a hold of somebody because I was preaching. I didn't even get to finish my good point. And he came out and hit the aisle and ran down and got saved. I said, well, that's the Holy Spirit working there. I know it is. First time in my ministry, I ever saw anybody literally run. I'm not talking about he walked. I mean, he couldn't get down there fast enough. This past week, the International Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Convention rewrote their policies. They had a number of people wanting to be in missions and participating in missions in the Southern Baptist Convention. The International Missions Board recognized that these people were struggling with their experience in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the policy said, if you practice this you will be dismissed and it got to where there were so many people baptized in the holy spirit they changed their policy and said it's okay go ahead and do it i'm telling you things are changing in this world today and one professor at Wake Forest Divinity School, Bill Leonard, said in regard to this decision, he said, in so many parts of the world, these charismatic experiences are normative, and religious groups that oppose them are getting left behind. In other words, if you're going to get on board, if you're going to stay with it, you're going to have to accept the fact this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. That in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. If you can't beat them, you might as well join them. People are hungry for God. They're tired of spiritless sermons and professional musicians. They're desperate for a God encounter. I'm pleading with my church that we've got to be more than Pentecostal on paper. We have to not only believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we have to have that hunger and that desire to be empowered by Him every day. That it's not just about, I wonder if the pastor, what he's going to do this week, who he's going to meet, who's, who he's going to get saved. But I, I, I tell you what, when you, get, when you get this many people anointed and appointed, wherever you go, that you can stop and lay hands on somebody else and say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I unto thee, and let the power of God begin to flow from your hands. You said, I'm not holy enough to do that. I'll tell you what, it doesn't. And we're not talking about holiness. We're talking about people that are just yielded to God and willing to let Him work and give Him a chance. 
Give him a chance. You people, you're just like the, the you're no different from, from the, the fishermen, the lay ministers that suddenly became powerhouses simply because they wanted God to work through their life. This can be you. You can do this. We need the Holy Spirit. And here's what I'm going to do today. If you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit or if you just want, you just want a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life today, I want you to be the first one to come up here and stand right here in front. Because I need this. I want this today. Just stand right here. And the